Recorded live by the funniest lesbian comedians who call Western New York home, it's Transformation Thursday. Hi, my name is Bill Satry, and because I still haven't figured out how to say no to Amy, I have re-upped as the big voice of my favorite podcast. Your hosts for this journey through Tangentville are Sarah Cannon from Honey, oh, Honey, Hon, Honey on Me. Where's the pronunciation guy? Falls of New York. Well, that town. Honeyoy Falls, New York. And Amy Stevens, who hails from White Bear Lake, Minnesota, don't you know? But now, both call Rochester, New York, not Minnesota, their home. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. This is Sarah Cannon. My pronouns are she, her. And my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Welcome to another fabulous episode of Transformation Thursday. This week on the podcast, we have Chris Davis from Portland, Maine, joining Sarah and I. Chris, well, actually, just me, Amy, yeah. because Sarah had some other work to do that night for the podcast. We had to pull some double duty to get stuff done. but That is true. That is true. I was so, sorry to miss the actual conversation but you edited it and you heard it so you know how good it, it turned out so. it's a it's amazing it's really good it is a great episode so chris talks about their growing up within the mormon church they talk mm-hmm. about their transgender kid coming out to them and then at the same time chris comes out to their transgender kid as a lesbian yeah. and there's like leaving the Mormon church, divorce, and all this stuff. And it's a really inspiring story and it's fantastic. And I just, it's just full of love and it's just, wow. Wow. I agree. That was actually what I was going to hit on. My favorite part of the interview conversation. Well, let's hold on to that. And let's call this, let's call this a tease. And we'll be right back with my interview with Chris Davis right after Bill Satry, the big voice of Transformation Thursday, reminds you that what you are listening to is copyrighted material. This is Bill Satry, the big voice of Transformation Thursday, here to remind you that what you're listening to is copyrighted material. All rights reserved 2022. You can find Transformation Thursday online by searching for at TransThursPod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It's free and does help get Transformation Thursday to a larger audience. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens, and I still have the pronouns of she, her, and I want to thank the big voice of Transformation Thursday, Bill Statry, for doing all of our voice work. He volunteers his efforts for that, and I just want to give him a big shout out and a big thank you. But before we drool all I mean, talk about Bill too much longer, I want to talk about Chris Davis. Chris is joining us from, is it Portland, Maine, or Bangor? You grew up in Bangor. Right. I live in Portland now. Portland now. Okay, so the big city of Portland, right? Yes. <laughs> so Chris, Chris is a former ex-Mormon like myself. And however, one of the big differences between her and I is that she was born and raised in the covenant, right? Um, almost. 
I, almost, uh, almost. <laughs> my mom was baptized when I was real little. Okay, so but, but you not my had, dad, but not your dad. Okay, gotcha. So almost born in the covenant, so and, close, and so close, and that's such a big deal in Mormon culture and <laughs> Mormon approach to life, isn't it? Yes. And today we're just going to talk about more. Um, you know, Chris's Mormon's experiences growing up, growing up in Bangor, Maine, and some really traumatic stuff that happened that helped keep her closeted, um, the transition of her son, and then her coming out to her son and all this ex-Mormon stuff. So we're just going to have a good time with this, aren't we today, Chris? Excellent. I can't wait. You, you can't wait, but fantastic. Great. Well, you, do you have two, three hours? No, just kidding. Just kidding. I do. <laughs> well, no, I mean, we usually keep it to 40 minutes or so, but we'll probably go a little over tonight because I got a feeling you and I are going to have a lot of fun talking here tonight. I think you're right. Chris, why don't you give us the high level, who you are, where you're at right now, and then backtrack to, you know, your, you know, your Mormon upbringing? Well, uh, right now I'm living in Portland, Maine, of course, and uh, by myself and loving that. And I just came back to Portland, back to Maine in 2020 after raising a family in Connecticut. I was a stay-at-home mom for 20 years and uh, faithful in the church, raised my kids in the church and married a very nice man. And then I came out to him in uh, January of 2020. And that's when my life just took a different direction and a direction that I could live with. Yeah, you can live with. So can I ask you a personal question there? Because you said live with, was, was there suicide ideation there in the background? Yeah, there was actually. Uh, my children were real little. And uh, at the, at, in 2003, they were one in four. And I had a traumatic experience happen in my life. My brother passed away. It really threw me for a loop. And I, I just really took stock of my life and what I was doing with it and how happy I was with it. And I realized I was not happy, but I was stuck. I came out to myself finally at age 33, 32. Yeah, 32. Yeah, 2003. And so I still had 17 years to go to raise my kids to adulthood. And I just made the plan that I would raise them until they graduated high school. And then I would be free to end my life. And that would have been the summer of 2020. So you, you had this plan and you're not the first person that I've spoken to that's had a similar idea where if I get my kids to here, then I can die by suicide and everything will quote, unquote, I'm using big air quotes here on zoom will be okay. Right. Was that, And so my, and my follow-up question here is what, what stopped you from doing that? Uh, I had a life coach actually. Uh, her name is Christine and she was, she was a friend for like 15 years. And, and we got together because she needed help to practice her life coaching skills and to get certified. And I was like, oh, sure, I'll do that. And this was about, uh, I would say about three years ago from now. And we made this whole plan. She did all these assessments. She, she was helped me pick a career and helped me get into school and just, made a whole big, big uh, plan for me for my future. And then I finally just confided in her, I'm not going to be doing any of this because I have, I already have a plan and it doesn't include anything, but just finishing being a wife and mother and then dying. What was her response to that? She was so compassionate. She was shocked. She had no idea. And she, she was really loving and wanted to 
to dig deeper and help me discover my worth outside being a wife and mother. Because, you know, in the church, we're taught that wife and mother is our greatest calling, our greatest blessing, our greatest fulfillment of our purpose and destiny. And um, I just never felt called to those things. And so I was performing those things just to be obedient. And I didn't feel it. Yeah, and obedience is such a big thing in Mormon culture that people outside of the church and the culture just don't really understand how important that is, especially, you know, in the last 10 years of the church, like it's all about obedience. And so do you think she saved, do you think she saved your life or do you think just because of her loving compassion, do you, you know, did that she save saved, your life? she saved my life. She yeah. did. She, I, I don't know how I got the courage to tell her about my suicide plan, but she just took it and molded it helped me mold it into something that I could live with something that I something that was a life worth living, which is the name of my memoir that I'm writing. Yeah. And a little bit that we've interacted um, here. Definitely. I'm happy that you're here and it's you worth you finding that out that you are worth living. It to me is a wonderful gift to humanity. And even if your memoir or your writing only saves one person's life, that's worth it. Right. Right. Exactly. But I got a feeling it's going to touch a lot more lives than just one person though. So, so, well, let's, so that she saves your life, but let's, let's backtrack though, because you, you know, you're, we're quite born in the covenant, but you grew up in the church primarily, correct? Yes. And in Mormon culture, you know, it's traditional for a child. The age of accountability is what it's referred to inside of the church because the original prophet of the church, Joseph Smith said, children at the age of eight are quote unquote accountable. And so, and, but you were not baptized at eight, you were baptized at nine. And so in a Mormon culture, that's a big deal. And people don't really realize that, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your early childhood memories in the church and how you came to be baptized at the age of nine. I went to primary a few times. Uh, my mom wasn't really active. Uh, she was baptized when I was real small. And I don't have a, a Mormon audience, like some other podcast. So I just, so primary is Sunday school for kids that are under the age of 12. Yes. I want to make sure we get that explanation (laughs) in of what that is. I appreciate that. I didn't realize that. Uh, Yeah. And so I had some exposure to church and to the other kids at church. And um, my parents were not on the same page as far as my baptism went. Um, When it was time for me to be baptized at eight, my father said, absolutely not. And my mother was really, really hoping that I would. And so um, for a multitude of reasons, they got divorced when I was nine. And my mom rushed me to the bishop and said, she wants to get baptized, you know. And um, so during the interview, here I am nine years old, alone in a room with a with a grown man asking me questions. And he said, that's normal. (laughs) Yeah, it makes me cringe now. But yeah, at the time, it was it was normal. And I told him what my father told me to tell him when I was asked the question of what I want to be baptized. I said, I'd like to wait until I'm 16, when I can make a better decision. And he was really confused by that, because my mom had said I wanted to be baptized. Um, He just, he just wiggled my answer around until it fit what he deemed as I wanted to be baptized. He was like, well, you like it, right? You like being at church. You feel good here. You want to get baptized someday. Yes, yes, yes. He took that as yes, I want to be baptized. And so 
it was only a matter of weeks later and I was riding in the car with my mom and she said, we're on our way to your baptism. (laughs) And I was really surprised because I didn't tell her what my dad told me to tell the bishop, but I just assumed that the bishop would take that as I wanted to wait because I said I wanted to wait, (laughs) but uh, he didn't tell her that. And so I showed up at the chapel. Yes, so you show up at the chapel. Who's there to baptize you then? Because my, our home teacher. Uh, I didn't know until the home I was, teacher. Of course, of course. <laughs> I they told me to put on this starchy white dress, and um, there were three of us getting baptized on that day. And the first one went in. She went into this tub. Her father said a prayer and dunked her under the water. And I was beside myself. (laughs) I had never seen it before. I had no idea what was going on. And then they said it was my turn. So I step onto the wet stairs down into the font and my home teacher's on the other side. He comes down his side and he says the prayer and he dunks me and they say, we have to do it again. You wear it all the way under. And here I am standing in my pre-adolescent almost nakedness in front of these people that I don't even know. And um, they have to say the prayer again and, and I get dunked and I have to say all I felt was wet. <laughs> I did not feel any magic. <laughs> How do you feel? Wet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so then from that moment, I was told that I had promised obedience at my baptism and that because of that covenant that I had participated in, I was obligated for eternity to follow Jesus and to do what the church told me to do. Well, this is a pattern in Mormonism where you don't really fully understand the obligation that you just took upon yourself until afterwards. So you don't really understand like, hey, this this is a lifelong obedience obligation. You didn't really get that education until after you go to the Mormon temple you know, and there's this, you know, there's part in the beginning where it's like, well, if you don't really want to be here, you can leave, but you don't know what you're getting into. And you're there in front of like 50 people. It's not like anybody. I've never seen one person get up and walk out of the temple. Like, oh, no, I'm out. See ya. <laughs> I've never seen it either. Yeah. You know, and you know, and, you just, and I just remember I was in a fraternity of my undergrad. And I just remember the Mormon temple experience. And I'm just like, this is a really bad fraternity initiation played out on a video screen and like, this is stupid, but yet because everybody else is doing it, I'm like, okay, this is what I got to do to marry my eternal companion. I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. I went through the temple just before my mission and uh, yeah, it was, it was jarring. Yeah. And so, you know, what year did you go through? 92. Did you have to do the death oaths and everything? Like cut your ball? Okay. No. At least you didn't have to do that crap. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> I wasn't aware <laughs> that I was lucky, but now I am. So you get baptized, you're growing up in the church, your mom has custody of you. Is your dad involved with your life? Is he like providing counter programming or, or at this point, are you just like, okay, I've made this obedience covenant and are you like diving all in on it? That's a really good question. I, I just went along with it uh, because... I felt like it pleased my mother. My father was uh, upset when he found out, uh, but, and, and he continued to say, you know, I don't want this to ruin your life. I don't want this to affect your decision-making on what you do with your life. I don't want the church to tell you what to do and who to be. At the time, things were pretty rocky 
uh, in my family and I needed the structure of the church, to be honest. I joined Young Women's, uh, the youth group at age 12 and I found my home. I just felt like, oh, this is where I belong. This is where I need to be every Sunday. And this is going to give me the structure and the approval that I've been seeking. You know, at age 12, it's a very natural age developmentally wise to start experimenting with not drugs, maybe drugs sometimes too, but, but with like sexuality, like, you know, that first kiss, that first, that first big crush that, you know, when we were in school, you're passing that note saying, will you go with me? Will you do this? You know, yeah. did you have that inclination at that point? Like, Hey, I'm really attracted to Sally over here and not Johnny over there. So did you already have that inclination that you were a little bit different that, you know, with the, your sexuality? I did. I, I, suspected it since I was seven, when you start to become aware of those kind of things. And actually, in Young Women's, one of the things that drew drew me to it was that there was this whole room of people, girls my age, and they smelled so good, and they looked so pretty. (laughs) They wear really nice dresses, and they do their hair up nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's (laughs) kind of attractive to me. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I have a kid that went to, you know, girls camp recently. And one of the things that they said is like, you know, they fell in line with, they found, they found their queer friends at girls camp. Really? You know, and I think that's just a sign of the times that we live in now. It's like, you know, queer people are going to find each other. But of course, you know, we're talking early 1980s here when you're in, in, in church. So what do you do with that feeling of saying, yeah, I really like these girls. I could be attracted to them. What do you do with that? I stuffed it. I stuffed it down. And I had lessons at church that talked about how wicked it was and how the scriptures supposedly taught that it was not what God wanted. And I was really confused, but I was all in and I wanted to be back. You know, I wanted to honor my baptism and I wanted to be obedient. So I, I just sublimated my own desires. Did you date, did you date young men within the church, but you were growing up in Bangor. So the church population small, were you dating boys at school? You know, what, what does that look like for you then? I didn't date a lot, but I did uh, go with, as you say, a couple of young men that were at church The Bangor actually has quite a large Congrega- two congregations in a stake center. Ooh, big, big time. Yep. <laughs> and so you're, so the church, did you do, and so did you do all the church dances? and All, all the dances, stuff? all the youth conferences, all of the girls camps. They didn't do the pioneer trek things back then. Thank God. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. But um, I did, I was like the class president of every class and I was the, um, I was the pianist and I was in seminary, early morning seminary for four years. And I was all the way in. Yeah. And that's, yeah. An early morning seminary for people that don't know my, my youngest or my oldest did that for a few years, but that's where you go to, you go to church before school for five days a week for all through high school. Yeah. That's some hardcore crap. Yeah. People don't realize that. So, you know, this is, this is the early eighties. So we have the AIDS epidemic. We have you being closeted, or at least knowing that there's something a little bit different about your sexuality that doesn't fit the quote unquote norm. Do you remember the Boyd K Packer talk about for to young men only? I mean, that happened in 1976. So you're only a few years after that. Is that being talked about, you know, between the young men, between mutual, 
you know, the young women, you know, do you remember any of that conversation? Was that the little factory talk? Yeah, the little factory talk. <laughs> I heard something about it, but it was mostly kept with the young men. We didn't, uh, we weren't privy to that kind of counsel, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. Gross. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's just an amazing talk about how young men should keep control of their quote unquote little factory and not abuse their little factory which means you shouldn't <laughs> masturbate. And at this point, I'm just going to drop in some audio from Boy Cade Packer. All right, we're back from Boy Cade Packer. And yeah, that's the stuff you had to grow up with, though. And that sets the tone for that environment within the church. And also, I would say larger outside of the church because of the AIDS epidemic and everything. So who's coming out in the mid 80s? Right, exactly. It was too dangerous. In fact, you're aware of Charlie Howard? Yep. Yeah. Uh, he was in Bangor and he was beaten and thrown in the river and killed for being gay. And that was Did when it, I was 13. And so you're living in that town. He's murdered. Was anybody ever held accountable for that? Yes. Three young men were held accountable for it. Um, they were in high school at the time. So just a couple of years older than me. And did they serve jail time, prison time, anything? They did. Or, yep. Are they still in prison? No. No. <laughs> But I don't know much the, about them. Okay, fair. And then that's fair enough. But how were those how were those three boys regarded within the community though? Were they looked at as pariahs or no, I wish they had been. I wish that it had been a lesson for everyone, but it was celebrated. They were celebrated, they were lauded, they were held up as as um heroes that were helping to rid the population of weirdos and gay people. It was and very disturbing. What does that do to young Chris? Who <laughs> Young Chris was like, if this was what I am, then I am not going to tell anyone. Yeah. And, that, and that's a big thing to carry around, isn't it? It was really scary. And I've talked to a few of my friends who've come out since then, and they were terrified too. It was just, it was just a, it was, it was a, a mob mentality and it was terrifying. And the friends, that, the friends you spoke to were these friends from high school in that same yeah. era. That, okay. So they, they were familiar with that and they grew up in Bangor. So they knew what was going on. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'd mentioned to you before we got started, like, you know, in my high school, somebody was beat up for admitting they masturbated, but I could, <laughs> you know, but that's child's play compared to what you were dealing with over there in Bangor about the yeah. same time. So yeah, I don't, yeah. You're going to hide that then. Yeah. So you're dealing with that through high school. Then what happens to Chris? In high school, I did the music program at Bangor High. I did a lot oh, of every good queer does band, music orchestra, yeah. chorus, yes, <laughs> uh, stage band, concert choir. You know all the musics, and that's where I found my people. All the gays, all the gays uh, who I did not not know were gay at the time, but uh, I found out after high school was over that we we all had something in common. Even though I didn't tell them about me at the time, they came out to me. So uh, it was it was really comforting to be in a bunch of a group of people who were just so accepting and so um, open and uh, progressive. It was nice. Yeah, and since you've in you've since come out to them, obviously. Yes. And were you know how did they respond to you coming out? They welcomed. They were all men, and they welcomed me with open arms and said oh honey and <laughs> welcome to the club and we support you 100% and please call me if you need help well I'm glad you found that support you know even if it was after many years after high school it's good that you're able to have that connection and feel that support from your community there I mean that's great 
So did you go to college? I the, did. You know, okay, where'd you go to college? I, I've been to college in a few places. <laughs> uh, I went, yeah, I went me to, too. <laughs> I went to the University of Maine uh, for a semester. Black Bears. Yes, <laughs> go hockey. <laughs> and then um, we went, I went to, I, I needed to leave Maine. I needed to get out of Bangor. I felt like I just didn't fit in with my friends who were drinking and partying and I was Mormon. And so um, I moved to Utah because that was the only other place I had friends and uh, went to school there for a couple of years, went on a mission I came back, did more school, and then um, met my husband, and we moved to Connecticut. So uh, my kids were a little older when I went back and did a little more school at Western Connecticut State University. And then um, most recently, I'm at University of Southern Maine. And it's still working on undergrad. Still working on undergrad. Well, you're, you're working on it, and that's the important thing. And so when will you be done with your undergrad? Yes, when will I be done? I'm expecting uh, probably about another year and a half to two years of taking one or two classes, two or three classes at a time. Well, you're an adult. You have to manage life. So yeah, keep plugging away. You'll get it done. Invite me to your graduation party. All right. (laughs) Well, you mentioned in there why, you know, when you moved to Utah and you go on a mission, where did you serve your mission? I served my mission in San Jose, California. The best 18 months of your life, right? (laughs) It was tough. It was really hard because I just got, I hate to use the word brainwashed, but I just, I just forced myself to believe what I wasn't sure about and just, just spent a lot of time convincing myself that this is where I was supposed to be. And these are the things I was supposed to be doing. And these were the people I was supposed to be reaching and teaching and baptizing. And it was a lot. And I, about six months in, I crashed uh, spiritually, emotionally, I just, I just fell in the dumpster and could not do it anymore. What led to that crash though? Because that doesn't happen in a vacuum. So, I mean, there had, I mean, you're, you're, you're brainwashing yourself, but also, you know, you're working in an environment where at that time you're 21 years old, 2021, when you go on a mission, Yeah. the male missionaries were 19. Yeah. So you're, was much, much more mature as a 21-year-old female than a 19-year-old male whose prefrontal cortex is not nearly as developed as yours. And that's a whole bunch of scientific talk we're not going to get into. But then you're also dealing with this second-class citizenship thing within the Mormon church of being a female. And you're working literally under boys that are one to two years younger than you with who do not have the same life experience. And you're dealing with a leadership that is very misogynistic. Is that correct? That is correct. The, the young boys that were in the leadership positions in the mission, uh, they were cruel. They were cruel. They, uh, some of them were very nice. I have to say that there were a handful that were gentlemen and they were um, very kind to us sister missionaries but like we would call in our numbers at the end of the day meaning that we would tell how many books of mormon we had given out and how many discussions we had had with people and how many people we had approached to ask them about if they had heard about the church and that kind of thing they would just so often they would make fun of our numbers and just make fun of uh us for say you know for doing we were doing double what they were doing but at the same time they would they would tease us by saying, oh, is that all you did? You know, you only gave away 10 books of Mormon today. And, 
you know, what are you, what are you lazy today? Or, you know, things like that. They were teasing. And I think that is the way young men tease each other, but you can't do that to a sister missionary because we were trying so hard and just to hear that kind of feedback was disheartening. Uh, that was difficult to hear. And then the, the leadership in the, in the mission, my mission president was misogynistic. He said that he thought the sister missionaries were more trouble than they were worth and that if he had his way, he'd send us all home. How were you, he, why were you more trouble than what were you worth? Because, <laughs> you, because you had a vagina? And you... I, 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 I don't know. I honestly don't know. I thought maybe it was because we have personality differences and get into scuffles. I, I don't know. I mean, the men were doing the same thing. I don't know what Obviously, he had an issue. So yeah, it's called being a Mormon male. <laughs> there was a. It's have true. You pretend, have you pretended to be one for a little bit? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> there was oh a. Gosh. There was a bishop in one of my wards who was one of my wards, meaning one of the congregations that I served in as a missionary in California, and he was he invited the sister missionaries. Uh, out of the kindness of his heart and to be generous to us, he invited us to the priesthood executive committee meetings every Sunday morning before church. And so that he would send us out to visit members of the congregation who were less active in the church, less uh, not participating as much or, or homebound for any reason. And then we would come back to him and, and give him updates. And he would make fun of these people. And just, you know, one there was, of the inactives or? Yes, yes. There was one me member, she was blind, and we visited her every week to help her, you know, clean her apartment and pet her dog and give her a good message and whatever she needed. And um, she passed away. And I brought that news back to him, and he laughed that we had gone to visit a dead woman. Oh my gosh. And there That's was another. Yeah, it was cruel. It was unnecessary too but there was another family who the the husband had been excommunicated and he was he had told us that he would like to be baptized again and so we brought that news to the bishop and his counselors and they just elbowed each other chuckling you know we know why he got excommunicated and and all this stuff just just I just thought I don't want this man coming into this environment where he's going to be, you know, laughed at. Yeah. Well, how do you, you know, young Chris being a, you know, 20 something missionary, how do you reconcile that on the ground experience with the faith? It was difficult. It was difficult to separate the man from the, the office kind of thing. It was difficult to say, well, this man is called of God, so I need to obey him. And yet what he's saying is not of God. <laughs> that was very difficult for me. Well, in a Mormon theology, the bishop is, you know, the congregation's representative of the Lord. And so, and all of us that took callings within the church were taught that our callings and our missions and our jobs within the church were given to our priesthood leadership, most likely the bishop or branch president or stake, you know, stake president or mission president, that that inspiration came directly from heaven. Exactly. And so and I thought if these men are God's mouthpiece, what does that say about God? <laughs> and what does that say about these men? And what does it say about the organization of the church? It gave me a lot of doubts. 
So six months you crash and burn and you, and so I call, I call my mom, like, <laughs> please help me. Yes. I was like, mom, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's not what they told me it was going to be. Uh, I, I can't do this anymore. Can I please come home? And she just said, I need you to stay out there. I need you to, to keep going for the next year to finish your 18 months. And I need you to finish this because if you come home early, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And plus, she didn't say it, but it would be an embarrassment to our family. Well, in Mormon culture, people come home from their mission are, they're, they're looked down upon. Yeah, they are. Yeah, like, oh, you weren't as valiant as you should have been. Mm-hmm. And you wrote a letter home. I heard this in an interview and you made a comment about enduring. Do you want, do you remember that letter? Yeah, I felt like my mom had done so much for me. She had, she sent me packages. She wrote me letters. She sent me pictures of her flowers in her yard and she just really helped me to feel like I had a home away from home and that I had support from home and I thought she is just asking me she is just asking me to give this one last year to this mission and I can endure to the end I can do that for her that is such a Mormon brainwashing (laughs) thing to brainwash thing to say because I mean that's we are taught as Mormons that we are here and we've been chosen by God to come forth in this last dispensation of times. Our spirits are reserved. We're the valiant of the valiant. And all we have to do is endure to the end and we'll be able to return home to Jesus Christ and have polygamous relations in heaven and create a planet someplace and populate the shit out of it. You know, and so, but we just have to keep enduring and enduring and, you know, and you had one year and all you had to do was an endure. So, I mean, that is just Mormon brainwash speak. It was, it was, it was, I really did a lot of gymnastics, a lot of mental, spiritual gymnastics. You must have one strong brain. (laughs) Must be really flexible. (laughs) Yes, it was. It really was. So you stick out. So you, you you stick out the mission. You come home, and is that where you, you meet? How how long after you came home did you meet your um, husband? I met my husband the year before I left for my mission. Okay. We weren't ready for any kind of commitment yet, and so I went ahead and went on my mission. And we decided that when I got home, if he was still available and I was still available, that we would see how things went. And so I got home and I said, "Hey, I'm still available," and he ran. <laughs> he Who you got, are away he from got, you away from me Uh. he got cold feet he was a part of a group of um well i i don't want to talk too much about him but he was part of a group that scared each other about women and and uh he he had cold feet and so uh, but i finally caught him was that was that group called men (laughs) (laughs) yes yes you've heard of them (laughs) no a thing or two (laughs) so you end up getting married what year is that approximately 96 yeah we don't want we want your story not his story yeah. so I, I appreciate that mm-hmm. 1996 you get married and you ended up in Connecticut or yep we got married in the temple and then about a month two months later we he got work in New York Connecticut area and so we moved to Connecticut and stayed there for 20 plus years so you're and you said you were a housewife for 20 years so that covers that time period then 
And at that time, you're, you mentioned a little bit ago, you came out to him in early 2020, right before the pandemic hit? January 2020, yep. Well, you really know how to pick your timing when it yeah. comes to coming out, right? <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this and have some fun. Oh, shit, lockdown. <laughs> Fuck, Chris, come on. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't great timing, was it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you in a, but in a different way. So, and how many, and you, you had kids, you mentioned. So yep. tell us a little bit about your family other than the husband. So we already know about him and we're just going to say you're not with him anymore, but we'll. Um, two kids, two and a half years apart. I'd never felt called to be a mother, but I love these kids with all my heart. Fair enough. Can't, can't imagine my life without them. You know, all the, all the things that people say, it's true that I, uh, I do love them dearly. They're both adults now. Uh, I raised them in the church. We raised them in the church. And uh, when my youngest was 15, he came out to me as trans. And his biggest question was, can I be trans and still stay in the church? And so the bishop caught wind of it, uh, the, the guy who's in charge of the congregation. And he asked us into his office to, quote, manage expectations early. Now, what does that mean? I've heard you say that in other interviews. Yeah. Well, uh, what was his idea of managing expectations? He wanted to make it clear that transgender was not a real thing, that it was that we're assigned gender before birth and that those, those don't change, you know, pronouns don't change, names don't change, um, that people were. I'm just taking a look at my body because I'm pretty sure it's a real thing. <laughs> wondered what you were doing <laughs> you are the real thing that's for sure <laughs> i'll see my tattoo never mind oh yeah i'm like for those of you who don't, yeah like i chris saying transgender people are real i'm like looking down at my boobs i'm like looking at my yeah we're real yeah <laughs> and my son was real and he your son is real. is real yeah is real and he was genuine and he was just trying to you know keep his baptismal covenants or whatever and trying to be faithful but he had to be true to himself at the same time so it's, the bishops bishops managing expectations saying is saying trans people aren't real what what is, what is what's mama bear's reaction <laughs> well he was saying also that that he wouldn't be able to go to girls camp that he wouldn't be able to use the men's bathrooms at church that he would only be able to go to the women's classes and and uh, youth group activities and that kind of thing. And so it, it just went, it went on and on. And then he started recruiting members of the congregation to his side. He was outing my son to people who didn't know the situation. And he was saying that they were not allowed to use the new name and new pronouns and at church that goes beyond church, you know, and that, that was the last straw for me. We met three times with him. And that third time he, um, I just said, you know, you told, you told us that you were here to counsel us. You told us to go home and pray and get our answers from God. We got our answers, but you're saying they're not right. And I just said, this is not, this is not right. This is not from God. This is not holy. This is not what Jesus would do. And so later that day, Sorry, I just I want to jump in on something there yeah. you said. And, you know, I wish more evangelical religious zealots, Mormons, whatever flavor of religion would understand that. You know, when we're still in that believing phase and we're trying to reconcile 
our LGBTQ identity with faith, we wrestle and scream at God more than they could ever imagine. And we get the answers that affirm ourselves. And then when you walk out to them and say, oh, no, you're just wrong. Yeah. Fuck you. Exactly. It's it's um, invalidating. And I didn't want my kid to be in that anymore. And so I well, took him out of the church. Hmm? Well, and when your son came out to you, Yes. What, what did you do? He came out to me. Uh, I'm going to affirm and love him. In the what driveway. Did you, what did you do? <laughs> in the driveway at our house, he came out to me. I had known that he was dancing around it for a couple of weeks. And so I was prepared when he did finally come out and say, what if I was transgender? And, and I said, of course, that I loved him and supported him and that I wanted to share with him that I was part of the queer community as well. And that I was a closeted lesbian. And his jaw did. <laughs> he was shocked. In fact, he, w- he was concerned about coming out to me because he was worried about that I was so religious, that I was so faithful, that he was worried that I was going to judge him harshly. And just for me to hear that my raising him in the church had contributed to the difficulty of this moment for him broke my heart. And you said you're so religious and so... Let's let's see how religious Chris was. What what callings did you hold in the church? I was young woman's president. Oh, yep, that's super religious. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want me to go on or just? Is that yeah, enough? just keep going, keep going. I was any, any relief society stuff in there? Yeah, I was uh, a counselor in the relief society. I was a compassionate service leader. I was the um, what was that? The monthly meetings, enrichment leader. So yeah, you were checking all the boxes for quote unquote leadership for women in the church. Yeah. Especially at the ward level. Yeah. Oh, I was the okay. stake young woman secretary. Oh, stake calling too. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, from a child perspective, then, you know, if you've been faithful and, you know, magnifying your calling. Yeah. I, I understand his viewpoint and like why you, that would be a scary proposition for him to come out to you. Yeah, it was. He was scared, but it brought him so much comfort to hear about me and to hear about that I was struggling with the same similar, similar issues to what he was struggling with and trying to fit in. And how did you two support each other then? You know, we did. We um, that Sunday, I took him home and told him that the church was not true like Santa Claus and that we were not going to be going back. Wait, I forgot your question. How did you support each other? Oh, yeah. We would go on Sundays instead of going to church. We went to Panera and we drank sweet tea and milky white coffee. (laughs) Sinners. We were sinners. And we would toast and we would just bear our testimonies to each other about how happy we were that we had left the church. And it took a couple of weeks for us to feel happy about it because it was a very sad occasion. But we finally did. Well, at that point, too, you're still married. So you you and you and your kid are off, you know, at Panera on Sundays and your husband, your ex-husband rather is doing what it still going to church. What what's going on there? Yeah, my ex-husband and my older son are both still faithful in the church to this day. Yes. OK. And do you, I mean, I'm not going to ask about the ex because I don't care about him. But I mean, do you still have a decent relationship with your older son then? Yeah, I do. We do FaceTimes every week. But you know, when I came out to him and told him that I was gay in 2020, 
he cried in my arms. I can see that. That's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. I had similar but different experiences with my kids, obviously. So no, that 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 pulls on the old heartstrings. I get yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. And you were, you know, and the thing is, it's like we raise our kids within the church. I look at it with my with my oldest to all the good things about what the church taught my kid about being honest and having integrity and you know, finding your calling and purpose in life, you know. My kids over in Buffalo helping start a union at a Starbucks, you know, and so, <laughs> you know, all those lessons she learned in young women's and through the church, even though she's not in the church anymore, she's still using, she's using those lessons to improve the world. Not because of some eternal salvation that's planned, you know, at the end of the rainbow, but to make this world better for her fellow workers and humans here right now. Absolutely. That's really the best motivation, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I, I love her to death and I'm proud of that. So, so you came out to the kiddo in 2017, was it? Yes. And it wasn't until 2020 20. that you, that you came out to the other one. Yes. And my ex and so we had and a your divorce. <laughs> you had a secret for three years and you, yes. you loved and supported each other through that. That's we did. And, and my son, it's beautiful, but that had to take a toll. You know, it didn't take a toll. I, it, it helped, it helped us both. Yeah. My son and I, it helped us to, to grow closer and to support one another and to uh, learn to love ourselves. My son didn't have trouble loving himself. He was, he, he, it came very naturally to him, but I had internalized a lot of homophobia, a lot of self-hatred, self-loathing, and uh, I had a lot of work to do. And he just helped me through that and helped me to love myself, not in spite of who I was, but because of who I was. Yeah, no, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful gift that he gave you. And so early 2020, you come out, we know now you're divorced. So spoiler alert, <laughs> how quick did you pack up and move out? And you know, what, what's happened to Chris since then, you know, two years on. I stayed until August in Connecticut um, with my family, August 3rd, I packed up and, and moved to Portland. Uh, oh, I got a question for you. Yeah. How awkward was lockdown? It was very awkward because my ex-husband was working in the basement. <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy time for sure. But yeah, there was just no getting away from it. There was no escape. Yeah. And yeah. so and so you moved to Portland and on August 3rd, 2020 is my new life day. I celebrate it every year. Yay. It's the day that I did not commit suicide. I did not die by suicide and I started a new life. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, went to school and got a job and I'm just really, I, I have this, the Thoreau quote up on my wall that says, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, live the life you have imagined. And I look at that every single day and think I am living my dream. I'm living the way I want to live and nobody's telling me how to live and nobody's tricking me into living a different way and nobody's insisting that I live the way they want me to I I am myself I'm an individual I am authentic and uh I'm, I'm loving it oh, that's that's fantastic 
Now, did I hear a rumor? Do you have a girlfriend or what's your, are you in a relationship now? How's, how's the, how's the dating been since you've come out? Cause that's a different, that's a different, you know, it's not like it's all, you know, it's not like, Oh, I'm going to come out as a lesbian. And I'm just going to like date. It, it's a, it's a different, it's a learning curve. And in COVID for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how's that? How's that changing your life? Uh, and without divulging too much personally, but I mean, I've had success. I've found the love of my life and we are very, very happy together. Oh, pitter patter, pitter patter. That makes <laughs> me happy. Yay. And our, and is she in the Portland area there by you then? Yep. Yep. Okay. She's not, that was never a Mormon. So oh that's good. God. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know my last two relationships have been never Mormons. It's like, sometimes you got to explain stuff to them, but then else times it's like, you know, it's just nice not to have to think about Mormonism sometimes with people. So. Do you know what the other day I showed her the um, South Park episode with Joseph Smith? So accurate. <laughs> I told her everything that they're saying is true. It just, they tell it in a way that makes you feel really stupid for believing it. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, have you seen the Book of Mormon? Not yet. I was just about to see it when COVID hit. Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times and there is that same thing. Exact well, same it's thing. The same, same writers. Same writers. Yeah. I mean, and there's this one scene in the second act where the audience, the non-Mormons that are watching it are like, they don't understand the deep theology of the scene. And I'm just and I'm just cracking up laughing. And like, I went one time in London with one of my English friends. She's like, you're laughing where you're laughing in different spots than the non-Mormons do. And I'm like, yeah, that's because I understand the cultural innuendo and as well as the doctrine that's involved where you understand the satire and the silliness of it. But I get the deeper stuff. And she's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So yeah, you'll have that same experience. So mm. oh, great. Well, Chris, anything else we want to talk about tonight? I mean, gosh, this has been a great story. Thank you. Uh, I've it's really great, enjoyed talking with you today. It's a great autobiographical look at your life. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, I have a, an essay that I wrote that's coming out in an anthology published by the University of Utah Press. When is that going to be out? That's going to be out in June. It's already available on Amazon to pre-order. What is that called? It's called, I Spoke to You with Silence. And my essay is called Five Reasons I Didn't Belong. Now, what are the, real quick, are you okay giving out those five reasons why you didn't belong? Real high yeah. level. Okay, so what yeah. are those five reasons? One was my, my baptism was, like I described, uh, was what I didn't want, but I got anyway. Uh, another was some sexual abuse that was swept under the carpet by the bishop. Uh, another was um, the my mission in the patriarchy. Another was the death of my brother and the the difficulty that I had reconciling myself and, and my gayness with that. And then my son coming out as trans. Those are five big reasons why you didn't belong. Yeah but there are also five reasons why you belong to the world at large. Thank you, Amy. Yep. So why don't we call it a night there? All right. Well, Chris Davis, it was a pleasure. This is the most time that we've got to sit down and spend with each other. And I have a good friend in, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember Berwick. Yeah, there's a Berwick. Yep. Yep, they live in Berwick. So okay. I know I will be over there this summer. And so 
when I get over to Berwick, we will make plans and catch each other in Portland. How does that sound? I would love nothing more. Yeah. I imagine we'll spend another day at Oak Orchard Beach. Yes. (laughs) I love that place. It's so great. So been there before. I know the area. So we'll definitely, we'll definitely have to catch up when I'm over there this summer. So that sounds great. Thank you so much for making time for us on this wonderful Wednesday evening and really appreciate you have a great smile and a great energy. I can feel it through zoom. And I know that sounds, you know, kind of cliche, but it's true. So thank you. Right. Amy. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed our talk. All right. Sounds great. We'll be back with more transformation Thursday, right after the big voice of transformation Thursday, Bill Satry asks you for a couple harder dollars. Did you know that most social media and podcast platforms do not monetize queer content and that it takes money and time to host, edit, and market a podcast? In an effort to not rely on advertising, internet search giants, and huge social media platforms who rule the metaverse, we're taking our pitch directly to you, the listener of Transformation Thursday. In an effort to get Transformation Thursday out to those interested in transgender and queer issues, please head over to TransformationThursday.com, where you will find the podcast Patreon page. As Sarah and Amy continue to streamline operations, you will get commercial-free episodes, Patreon-only content, and bragging rights to your friends that you financially support Transformation Thursday. Patreon levels start at $1 a month. That's it? $1 a month to help get Transformation Thursday out to those interested in trans and queer issues? So direct your favorite browser to TransformationThursday.com and become a Patreon today. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And this is Sarah Cannon. My pronouns are still she, her. Well, Sarah, you uh, edited that episode, um, and we kind of alluded to this in the intro about 45-plus minutes ago. So what are your takeaways from this cool interview? For me personally, what I really liked about the interview, my favorite part was when mother and son basically both come out to each other. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It was, it was so for me, someone who grew up with a particular faith and converted to Christianity number of years later, like I grew up Catholic, became a Christian, was in the evangelical church for so many years. I really identified with a lot of that struggle And so just the inner turmoil that mother and son must have had when they were talking about, I wasn't sure what the other one was going to think. And then once they realized they could just be honest with each other, it just led to so much freedom and relief. And it was just kind of this, I was so happy for them. Yeah, no, I was too. And I love that portion. And, and what I, what I want to add on to that is not only did they come out to each other at the same time, but then they held each other's confidence for three years. Yes. Yes. That's not an easy thing to do. No, no, but they were each other's safe space. And I just thought in, in a world where they were having to kind of hide, they could be themselves with each other. I thought that was so, that was such an intimate look at like a very, intense, but very inspirational mother-son relationship. I thought that was really kind of phenomenal. 
Yeah. And my, my takeaway with that, I mean, that, that moment for me is it's, 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 it's gut wrenching and in a heartwarming type of way, but yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of this interview. Um, I modeled this interview on Chris's interview with Maine public radio and that interview is about half as long as this one is. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was listening to that episode that Chris did for Maine Public Radio, I'm like, and I draw this out in the interview. It's like, I pick up on these things. It's like, you know, I wanted to know why Chris got baptized at nine. And yeah. you might say like, that's not a big deal, like eight to nine. But in the Mormon world, in the Mormon culture, that's a big deal. And I and I wanted to draw yeah. out those stories. And so in Chris's mission experience and, you know, these things within Mormonism that unless you know that culture intimately, yeah. you don't really understand how deep these things get ingrained in you as a Mormon. Even though I didn't grow up in the faith, I was spent 20 years in it. Yeah. So I really wanted to draw those out. And I was really happy that Chris was so forthright and just really just expounded on these ideas and painted that word picture so beautifully. And I'm really looking forward to her story coming out in the anthology later this year through the University of Utah Press. Yeah, me as well. And she did say she was writing a memoir, correct? Yep. Yeah, I'll be excited to to look for that. I should write a memoir too. Oh, don't we all have stories? Yes. Yeah, we do. We do. We do. But I'll tell you what, that is enough stories for tonight. Yeah, we've we've we got a lot out of that. Yeah, we did. And so great episode. I think this one should go into the uh, um, trans transformation Thursday Hall of Fame. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I concur. I concur. So on that note, let's turn it over to Bill Satry. What do you think there, Sarah Cannon? Yes, let's hear from the big voice, Bill Satry, who is going to ask you for a couple of your hard-earned dollars. No, he's not. He's going to say goodnight. Oh, I'm at the wrong segment. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll leave that in. That's okay. Yeah, we won't edit this out. You can hear my flubs. Uh, there we go. Yeah. Bill Satry is going to wish you a good night, and we will talk to you all next time. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to another wandering yet informative episode of Transformation Thursday. The podcast is produced and edited by Amy Stevens and Sarah Cannon. Until we assemble again from the land of 10,000 lakes, my name is Bill Satry, the big voice of Transformation Thursday. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.